Whenever you're ready. Okay. I'm using that as transitions from now on, <laughs> just so you know. I'm going to isolate that audio, and I'm going and I'm going to make it. It's the trip. I the hope transitions we can get out. to that point where we could actually have like a little a voice board or like just what? musical tracks. Yeah, yeah, that'd, that'd be, be super cute. great. Yeah. Belinda Carlisle is reminding us that love comes first with her hit song "Heaven Is a Place on Earth." This is probably the top song among young moms of that era, as well as cool older cousins and aunts. Sonny and Cher have just performed together for the last time on Late Night with David Letterman. And days before the big holiday, two Chicago television stations are hijacked by an unknown pirate dressed as Max Headroom. Today, we are going back to November 25th, 1987. And before we say anything... How dare you, sir, bring Max Headroom onto this podcast that means so much to me. Isn't it so hard when your co-host just backs you into an absolute corner and you have to read it because it's in the script? So now suddenly you're singing Mariah Carey in the opening? Yeah, I wouldn't know what that's like at all. Do you have weird feelings towards Max Headroom, Brandon? Yeah, I am terrified of that shit. That is the one thing I find (laughs) creepier than anything. I know it happened, obviously, in 87 because we just talked about it. (laughs) <laughs> um, so it's probably a lot easier to kind of cut sure. into television programming, I would assume. I don't know. But that was fucking scary. That is chilling. Chilling. This, like most things, like my true crime brain has gotten so used to there being an ending. Anytime I hear about anything like unknown, like we still haven't solved this case. We still don't know who this was. That creeps me out. That That's what I'm saying, right? Like. Who did this and why? Like, the why is the scary part. No, totally. Hey, y'all. Welcome to the Wayback Recap, a podcast that obsessively explores all things past, from our favorites in TV and film, to 13 Dead and Drive, a murder-themed board game originally released by Milton Bradley in 1993. The story behind the game involves the death of a wealthy old woman triggering a feud over her will. The players utilize traps located on the game board, which represents a mansion, to kill characters controlled by other players in order to claim the estate for themselves. Um, Yeah. Loved this game, dude. (laughs) Loved this game. I also loved this game, bro. I got this game for Christmas, and it was a game changer. So if, if you're not sure, if you've never played, 13 Dead and Drive is sort of Clue meets Mousetrap. Like, there's characters, and they die, and it's kind of 3D. Like, you have to build the game. Yeah, my favorite character was the cat, because you could play as the cat, the old yeah. woman's cat. And I love the kill where you would, someone would be at, like, the base of the fireplace, and then you would turn the knight, and they would fall into the fire. That was a great Really one. good. Really good. Uh, I was I really liked the fortune teller. And my favorite death was the one where the stone bust falls on you. I really liked that one. Nice. Okay. Yeah. I can see that one. <laughs> I think there was a ladder death too. For sure. There were a bunch of creative deaths. This made me think of another board game that is similar to this in terms of like just there's moving parts to the board game. Tornado Rex. Tornado Rex. I remember the commercial for Tornado Rex, but I don't remember actually playing. Oh, I owned that motherfucker. And I oh, actually. Nice. Yeah, it was like, I don't even know the premise of the fucking game looking back <laughs> at it. 
But I think like you have a card and you either go the amount of spaces on that card to get to the top of the mountain sure. or you would pull like the Tornado Rex card. This is off the top of my head. Don't know if this is true. <laughs> and then you would have to put a push a button, I guess, or whatever. And the tornado, which kind of looked like a green Tasmanian devil, would come and knock you off the board. It was so fun. And I would play all the time. So let me tell you, I sometimes... So I, as I mentioned, got this game for Christmas. I had a hard time finding people to play 13 Dead End Drive with me. Like, there was a lot of setup required. And not everybody had that kind of patience. It's rude, actually. I wish... If we were friends together at that time, I would have played... We would have played all the time. Shout out to my cousin, Michelle, who would occasionally indulge me. But most of the time, if we were going to play a putting together like a board game where you had to put a lot of things together, we played Wheel of Fortune because she had a full Wheel of Fortune game. That was also dope. I think I remember that. I love the idea of you like, Michelle, I need you over here now. We're about to play Dream Date. <laughs> Is that the one Literally. With the, the girl talk. Oh, we played a talk. lot of girl talk. <laughs> uh... I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. So it's Thanksgiving time. And since our theme for season two of the Wayback Recap has been celebrating cultural treasures, see episode 47, House Guest. Today, we are discussing 1987's Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, starring comedic legends Steve Martin and John Candy. I was going to go, choo-choo, for some reason we said, play. I don't know why. Listen, I like a train noise. I get it. Yeah, I had to restrain myself from doing it. I have no idea. It it just was in me. Directed, produced, and written by John Hughes, this film has worked itself into many families' Thanksgiving traditions. Steve Martin, who has made over 50 movies throughout his long career, still calls this movie his best work. And calls his co-star, the late, great John Candy, one of the finest acting partners that he had ever had the pleasure, the pleasure, oh my gosh, that he'd ever had the pleasure of working with. Going even further to say, We had a really good connection. When the camera was rolling, we looked each other in the eyes and it felt good together. We had great timing with each other. I love this movie, but I am even more excited to talk about the people involved as they have all had huge cultural impacts. Since this is our show, I'm gonna start with my favorite, John Candy. Little Don grew up in a Polish Catholic home that was shaken when John's father died of heart disease at the very young age of 35, when Johnny was just five years old. So sad. 35 is wildly young to die from heart disease, like damn. Yeah, that's like my age, man. John Candy grew up playing football. At 6'4", usually over 300 pounds, John Candy seems a natural fit for football. And he loved it. But at some point in his education, either at the end of high school or the beginning of college, I can't remember, he suffered a knee injury and it took him out of the game. But he studied journalism and eventually got into acting. John had some early acting jobs throughout the early 1970s, But everything changed in 1972, when John joined Toronto's branch of the Second City. Second City is an improv group that had gotten started in Chicago, but at this point had moved into Toronto, Los Angeles, New York. There were Second Cities all over. John gained wide North American popularity as a member of that group. And that 
celebrity-only roles when the Toronto-based group started Second City Television, SCTV. NBC picked up the show in 1981, and it quickly became a fan favorite. It won Emmys in 1981 and 1982. We could do a whole episode on SCTV, honestly, because A, it's wild how much success they saw, how quickly they saw it. But here are some SCTV alums. We have John Candy, of course. Rick Moranis, Eugene Levy, Catherine O'Hara, Harold Ramis, Dan Aykroyd, Rhea Perlman, Andrea Martin. The list goes on and on. Something that's so interesting when we look at SCTV, which is just a skit-based TV show, very similar to Saturday Night, Saturday Night Live. But the group at SCTV really bonded, and these actors would be friends for life. I mean, you can look at the relationship between Eugene Levy and Catherine O'Hara, who 45 years later are still seeing great success together. Yeah. It's sweet to me. I appreciate that these actors have bonded together and continue to support each other. Yeah, it's wild, too, because, I mean, you've named pretty much all the Ghostbusters, minus Bill <laughs> yeah. Murray and Ernie yeah. Hudson, but yeah. I was like, damn, everybody in Ghostbusters in SCTV. <laughs> Shout out to Ernie Hudson. I love you. Marry me, Ernie. What's up? Remember when he was the warden on Oz? I do remember, yeah. Scary. Oz is scary. <laughs> uh, so it's like this camaraderie was sort of led by John Candy, who at the height of his career would give away roles to some of these, some of these people that we've just named. Like three different times, basically, John Candy gave a job to Rick Moranis because he thought Rick Moranis would do better at it. We'll talk about it. It's okay, sweet. Okay, I was going to ask which. <laughs> I have a guess. Can I guess? But don't tell Ooh, me now. Yeah. We'll, we get to it. Okay, yeah. I won't say okay. anything. Three roles that John Candy gave Rick Moranis that I think John Candy... W- saw Rick Rand as being better than. First mm-hmm. of which I'm going to say, do not tell me if I'm right. I'm not going to say anything. There. Okay. Uh, Honey, I Shrunk the Kids. I'm going to say also Ghostbusters. And then I'm going to say... Mm, oh, God. What else? Uh, uh, was he in... No, he wasn't in any of the Police Academy movies. Was he? <laughs> no, he wasn't. Good question. <laughs> no. All right. Uh, I'm just going to throw a third bomb out there because okay. now I can't think. Okay. Now I'm the spot. I can't think of Rick Moranis movies, which is upsetting to me. Um, I know it's not, but I'm going to say The Little Shop of Horrors because I think Rick Moranis was perfect for that role, and I don't think John Candy could have played that role. It just wouldn't, but I can't think of anything else Rick Moranis at the moment. Those are all great ideas. I can't. I'm so excited for you to learn. <laughs> So while John would take breaks from SCTV to go to Hollywood and to make movies, movies like 1941 with Steven Spielberg and the Blues Brothers, of course, John Candy would turn down offers in 1976 and 1977 to join the cast of Saturday Night Live, Wow! deciding instead to stay with SCTV. In 1983, John Candy made his first movie with John Hughes. Uh, National Lampoon's Summer Vacation, which John Hughes wrote and saw Candy as a lovable security guard at Wally World. Brandon, what's your opinion on National Lampoon's Summer Vacation? I enjoy it. Nostalgic factors. I have uh, conflicting feelings about Chevy Chase, much like your mom and I. Uh, We agree that I don't like Chevy Chase, but I do enjoy the vacation movies. Agreed. Uh, as we've noted, my mom didn't like Chevy Chase. We did not celebrate Chevy Chase in my house as a child. 
But I did see contraband Chevy Chase vehicles at my cousin Michelle's house. <laughs> <laughs> Shout out to Michelle. Just- I know, right? Uh, we watched national. Literally every time we had a sleepover, we would watch summer vacation. Every single time. I don't know. We were <laughs> we were into it. Today, I wouldn't like to watch it at all. But I have a soft spot for it. What's the age between you and Michelle again? Uh, so Josh is five. That means Michelle is four years older than me. Okay. 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 Uh, so the movie featured John Candy as a security guard, which was almost totally based off a security guard character that John Candy had played on SCTV. So it was sort of like not exactly the same character, but basically the same character. So it was successful. Over the years, Candy's image has been molded into this teddy bear of a man, adored by all. And while he was that, he was also many other things, including a shrewd businessman. If an agreement couldn't be reached... If Candy's demands wouldn't be met, he was not afraid to walk away from the table. I'm saying, good job, Mr. Candy, because that's how I that's how I do it. I agree. Like, if you if we can't do it, we can't do it. Let's not waste our time. Love yeah. it. Later, when that sneaky bitch Dan Aykroyd came to John Candy in the late '80s, early '90s, and was like, "Hey, John." I'm going to write and direct a movie called Nothing But Trouble, and I want you in it. John Candy was like, oh, my God, I have to do it because Ghostbusters was huge. So John Candy made that terrible fucking movie, Nothing But Trouble, and it's awful. I don't think I've ever seen that shit. Oh, it's terrible. It stars Chevy Chase and Demi Moore and Dan Aykroyd playing several, several characters. It's awful. It's awful. It's on HBO Max if you want to suffer. I might. I kind of love watching, like, old, terrible movies. Uh, Tupac Shakur is in it. Just FYI. <laughs> the, f- the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. It's it's a wild ride. Back to the show. <laughs> During this time, John Candy did finally come to, to SNL as a host, but only once. Bob Odekirk, longtime writer for SNL, says that John Candy was supposed to host like three more times, but he always got bumped like something weird always happened and he couldn't host. It was weird. That is weird. Bob Odenkirk. Why does that name sound familiar besides SNL? Uh, Sure. He's gained a lot of notoriety recently for his role as Saul Goodman in Better Call Saul. That is him. Yes. I thought that was him. Mm Mm-hmm. Okay. Wow. That is wild. In 1983, John Candy got what many people call his breakout role as Tom Hanks' best friend in the romantic comedy Splash. Brandon, do you have feelings about Splash? I love Splash. Um, do you? Yeah. <laughs> you Girl, wanted to be a mermaid. Yes, we've been through this. Anytime there was a mermaid anything, I was in it. I was like, I love this show. More mermaid stuff, bitch. Uh, Splash was followed up by two of my favorites, Brewster's Millions with Richard Pryor. And Sesame Street's Follow That Bird. Oh, he is in Follow That Bird. Great movie. Great movie. But John Candy's leading role debut would be in Carl Reiner's Summer Rental. After that, he reunited with Tom Hanks in Volunteers. Neither movies were very successful. But that all changed with Planes, Trains, and Automobiles with John Hughes. In an interview for the DVD... Hughes said he was inspired to write the film story after an actual flight he was on from New York to Chicago, 
which was diverted to Wichita, Kansas, and it ended up taking him five days to get home. Jesus. It kind of makes sense, though. Like, this seems like... We all know John Hughes famously lives in Chicago. <laughs> yeah. Um, and everything he does is takes place in Chicago. Yeah. So yeah. I could see how that was like, oh, yeah, this happened to John Hughes, probably leaving New York one time. <laughs> I do also think it's a testament to how big the United States is. Like, on the map, Wichita, Kansas, and Chicago, Illinois are not that far apart. But it would take, like, a long – I mean, it took him five days to get home. That's a long time. Yeah. Now, by 1986-1987, American screenwriter and director John Hughes was riding high. He directed a series of very successful coming-of-age films. Sixteen Candles, The Breakfast Club, Weird Science, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off. All of which he also wrote. Okay, not bad. I mean, none of these movies are my favorite movies on the planet, but Game Recognized Game, those are four successful movies. Yeah, uh, love all of those movies. <laughs> Additionally, he was writing other screenplays. He wrote uh, Mr. Mom. He wrote Pretty in Pink. Like, John Hughes has multiple streams of revenue. I'm only impressed. He clearly had the magic touch. And when he met John Candy, he felt like he'd met a kindred spirit. However... Contrary to John Candy's claims that Hughes wrote the role of Del Griffin specifically for John Candy, during pre-production, John Hughes actually wanted Tom Hanks and John Travolta in the starring roles. But Tom Hanks was filming big, and John Travolta had just been labeled box office poison. Meanwhile, the studio wanted John Goodman and Rick Moranis. Those are some compelling duos. Have John Goodman and Rick Moranis worked together before? I feel like they have. Oh, they the Flintstones. Yeah, thank you. I was like, they oh, definitely have. Yeah. Yeah, so they do have chemistry. I can see it. I can see it. I can see it too. Especially like late 80s John Goodman. I think he would have been real. I can't imagine how many times John Candy and John Goodman were up for the same role. I feel like that probably happened a lot. Tom Hanks and John Travolta sounds fucking terrible, and I don't want to watch that movie at all. Yeah. Yeah. Who would be who? I guess Tom Hanks is the Dell. Is Neil is the Sam is the Steve Martin character. Oh. And really? John Travolta would have been the annoying Dell Griffin, I think. Uh, oh yeah. When you said Travolta was labeled box office poison, I was like, really? But then look who's talking came out. Is right. Yeah, of- exactly. Yeah, it brought him back. After this, yeah. Mm-hmm. The last player to discuss is top build Steve Martin. Steve Martin was born in Texas, but was raised in Southern California. When he was 15 years old, he got a job at a joke shop in Disneyland, where he learned to juggle, do magic, entertain a crowd, basically. Steve took a crack at college, but after several schools, he dropped out to focus on acting and writing. I hear Smothers Brothers and think of the jelly. Is that the same thing? Like the jam and jellies? No, that's Smuckers, bro. Smuckers, my bad. No, it's all right. Now I want peanut butter and jelly. I love jelly and peanut butter. So good. Did you know people outside the States don't really like fuck with peanut butter jelly? I did know that. Yeah, it's weird. I mean, it's not weird, but it's a cultural difference for sure. Yeah. Throughout the late 60s and early 70s, 
Steve continued writing for shows while also working on his own stand-up. He was the opening act for The Carpenters and Toto. After finding the act a bit, Steve put out his first comedy album, Let's Get Small, in 1977, which featured his now famous Excuse Me catchphrase, which helped the album go platinum. Success followed in 1978 with his second album, Wild and Crazy Guy, which also (laughs) went platinum and featured the hit single King Tut, which he performed on Saturday Night Live while the track was number 17 on the Hot 100 Billboard chart. Wild. Was he the musical guest or is it just like part of his hosting? Bruh, he was hosting and the musical guest. Wow. Flex, right? Yeah. We used to do a King Tut dance to that song. That's how I was exposed to it at like summer camps. There was like yep. hand motions I, and shit. Oh, yeah. As I watched it, I was doing the dance. I was like, oh, yeah, four tuts to the left, four tuts to the right. I remember, man. We loved King Tut. Uh, Steve Martin. Though never a cast member, Steve Martin held the record for most appearances on the show, hosting a record 23 times. Steve Martin hosted the episode, the episode of the show, The Night Gilda Radner Died. And Steve Martin has spoken about how that was one of the hardest shows for him to do, as he had a really close relationship with her. Both of his comedy albums would go on to win the best comedy album at the Grammys, and would send Steve Martin on tours where he would legit sell out arenas. Like, Steve Martin was a wildly successful stand-up comedian. And I think people nowadays forget that. But, like, this bitch was selling out arenas playing the banjo and shit. (laughs) Doesn't surprise me, but yeah, I do remember, like, Steve Martin is a big deal. Big deal. Despite the success, Steve stopped doing stand-up comedy in 1981 so he could concentrate totally on movies and did not return for 35 years. Martin's early movie career isn't really worth talking about, but he saw huge success in 1979's The Jerk, which he wrote and Carl Reiner directed. The movie cost $4 million to make and made well over $100 million at the box office. Damn. Brandon, do you have opinions on The Jerk? I know of it. I don't think I've ever seen it. Yeah. Is it the one where he has a really long nose? No, that's Roxanne. <laughs> okay, sorry. <laughs> oh, Jesus. The jerk, the jerk? The jerk, he plays a character, a white, a white character, obviously, who's adopted by a black family. Yes, I do know of it. I mm-hmm. do know that scene. Yes, okay, mm-hmm. I do. It's been a while since I've seen that. I forgot yeah, all about that. It is in no way my favorite movie, and I don't think it holds up today at all. But it did feature Steve Martin's partner at the time, Bernadette Peters, who I love very much. Wait, partner? Like, what do you mean? They were, like, together? They were, yeah. they Yes. They were romantic partners for four years. Um, I could neither confirm nor deny that Steve Martin and Bernadette Peters' relationship ended when Steve Martin had an affair with Mary Tyler Moore. I don't know if that's real or not. But I I put that on the internet. Uh, What? (laughs) That while in a relationship with Bernadette Peters. 
How old was Steve Mary Martin? Tyler Moore? That's not even trying to be a read, but how old was she at that time? Because I feel like Mary Tyler Moore. I mean, Tyler this is Moore. 79. So she's oh, not that 79. old. Oh, yeah. okay. Oh, oh God. I, was, I don't know why. I was thinking like 90s. No, 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 no. This isn't 79. I feel like Mary was still the hotness. Yeah, I can see that. And like and I, I said, neither confirmed. I, I do too. I wouldn't know who to choose. I hope I hope Bernadette and Mary didn't hold it against each other. Don't let a man come between you, ladies. <laughs> so, fun fact, Stanley Kubrick loved the jerk. And he had a meeting with Steve Martin to discuss the possibility of Martin starring in a screwball comedy version of Tromnival. But Kubrick later changed his approach to that material. And the result of that was 1999's Eyes Wide Shut. Oh, I ooh. have a impossible time picturing a movie that at one time was a screwball comedy with Steve Martin and a noir starring Tom Cruise. Like, it's wild. That's a big, that's a big change. Yeah. I'm very curious. I would like <laughs> to sit down and ask, like, how did we get to from A to B? I have so many questions for Stanley Kubrick. Steve Martin made three more movies with Carl Reiner. Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid in 1982, The Man with Two Brains in 1983, and All of Me in 1984. Where even though Steve Martin was a big name and was asking $3 million per picture, all these movies bombed. Brandon, have you seen any of those movies? Dead Men Don't Wear Plaid. Never seen it. The Man with, the man with Two Brains. Never seen it. Or All of Me. Never seen it. Okay, so Man with Two Brains and All of Me were on Comedy Central afternoons all the time for some reason. So I have definitely seen both of those movies. Man with Two Brains has Kathleen Turner in it. And you know I love Kathleen Turner. <laughs> As do I, yeah. And then All of Me had Lily Tomlin in it. Oh, so. Wow. I think they're both good, but they were not box office hits, obviously. I'm going to watch them because I I like this cast. Yeah, Man With Two Brains is on HBO Max right now. I watched it the other day. It sounds familiar. I just don't think I've ever watched it. Yeah, that's okay. Also, update, because I'm on top of it. Bernadette <laughs> Peters and Mary Tyler Moore were really good friends. I don't see anything <gasps> about like an affair, but they were really good friends for... A very long time. They even created a pet adoption charity together called Broadway Barks. See, I'm just saying. Could be. Same crew. They're friends for a long time. Steve Martin. Don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Allegedly, this is all legend. In 1986, Steve Martin joined fellow Saturday Night Live veterans Martin Short and Chevy Chase in Three Amigos. Directed by John Landis and written by Steve Martin, Lauren Michaels, and singer-songwriter Randy Newman. It was originally titled The Three Caballeros, and Martin was supposed to be teamed up with Dan Aykroyd and John Belushi. Now, John Belushi had only been recommended because John Candy turned down the role because he didn't think he could ride a horse. Oh. (laughs) So... He turned it down. John Belushi then turned it down. And so then John Candy recommended Martin Short. And that's how Martin Short got the job. 
Let us know if you want a Three Amigos episode. I loved that movie as a kid. And after recently rewatching it, I have a lot of thoughts. <laughs> I love Martin Short. Clifford. I also love Martin Short. We need to put Clifford on the list because I yeah. fucking love Clifford. Not only do we need to put it on the list, we need to bump it up. Like it Wait, needs is to it be Clifford? Soon. It's Clifford, yeah, yeah, yeah. With Charles Gordon and Mary yeah, yeah. Steenburgen. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, bro. That is such a good movie. It's great. Like, what the fuck? This idea of just having a 40-year-old man play a child and no (laughs) one is acknowledging it in the movie, like we're just all supposed to believe it, is so off-putting. Speaking of the orphan man. Also, Cabin Boy, isn't that kind of the same thing? Cabin Boy, God, this is not the first time Cabin Boy has been referenced on this show, and that's too bad. We need to do an episode on Cabin Boy. Steve Martin came to planes, trains, and automobiles a bit reluctantly. He was excited for the chance to work with John Candy and John Hughes, but he was worried about the script, as he couldn't get over the fact that the script was 145 pages long. For reference, most comedy scripts are around 90 pages long. Like, even dramas don't usually go past 120 pages. I'm a screenwriter, and many of the competitions I submit make it clear in their submission guidelines that your script will be tossed out if it exceeds 120 pages. When Steve Martin brought this up with John Hughes, John Hughes just kind of like stared black blankly at him. Like, he did not register this at all. By the end of filming, John Hughes had shot over 600,000 feet of film, more than double the industry standard. After rewrites and ad-lib moments... The first edit of the movie came in over three hours long. As such, there are a lot of clips in the movie trailer that didn't appear in the final movie. I hate that. I hate when that happens. I also hate that. Like, first of all, recut the trailer. God damn it. (laughs) But also, yeah, I mean, I guess it's great. I would watch the three-hour cut. If if anyone's out there who has the three-hour cut, let me know. I'll watch it. So I do think the like 40th or whatever anniversary, maybe probably the 20th actually, uh, the anniversary DVD has a lot of the deleted scenes included, but a lot of them are, were destroyed. Like a film deteriorates so quickly, it's gone. But there are a lot of deleted scenes on the internet that, we, that you can find. But enough chit chat. Let's watch some TV after this quick commercial break. <laughs> The Twizzlers fill twist with sweet and sour cherry kick and citrus punch. Yum. 10 out of 10 would recommend. In fact, I yeah, did. that sounds bomb. You know, the filled Twizzlers are some of Sue's favorite candies. Dude, why don't Sue and I just hang out? We can watch Star Bruh, Trek. You guys, <laughs> y'all guys shouldn't comment. <laughs> play with, uh, I was say play with our cat. Sounds weird. I just mean our actual... <laughs> Um, she would love to talk to you about plants because you're so yeah. informed. She would love to pick your brain, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, I still think Sue knows more about plants than I do, especially irises. Oh, she is definitely an authority. Make no mistake. But she just likes talking about it. Yeah, I'd be down. I'm like, hey, let's grow some stuff. <laughs> I think she'd be feel- into it. How do you feel about drugs? No, I'm kidding. My mom used to take a really harsh stance. <clears throat> used to take a really harsh stance against drugs. 
Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, she still does, but I'm sp- mostly talking about pot here. But as marijuana has become legal in the state where I live, she's gotten way cooler about it. Has she partaken in edibles or anything? So mom says that all throughout the 70s, she ingested pot several times and it never like had an effect on her. And has since refused any pot that I have tried to give her. But this is what I'm going to do. Uh-oh. I am going to get some topical weed stuff. And I'm going to give it to my mom under the guise that it's like there to help with her arthritis. Which, of course, it is. And then after she tells me how great it is, I'm like, guess what, mom? (laughs) Secret. (laughs) You don't think think she'll like it? No, I'll just like, I'll have some in my hand and I'll have her take it. I'll trick her. She's very trusting of me. She loves me very much. Yeah, wow. Uh, first mistake. Yeah. You know who raised me, right, Sue? <laughs> Come on. You know I'm a flim flam artist by nature. How's your Sunday? My Sunday's just really been working on this, but like I've been going at a very leisurely pace. Like, it's... I'm a little... Like, talking about John Candy can be a little sad. And then moment of silence to the poor white ranger brandon remind me his name jason david frank r.i.p so sad to hear about that today so i've I've just been going it slow been going it slow today how about you i'm a grand old time enjoying life did andy get anything good at the farmer's market uh yeah he did we took the dogs on a walk too afterwards Oh, Which nice. Was That's needed. a good Rala idea. was bad. <laughs> what do you mean? Did not listen. Um, <laughs> Andy, like, would go into a store or something like that, and then I was like, I could get Ruby's attention, and she would follow me, like, follow my commands and stuff. Rallo did not care. Just barking, <laughs> trying to get to Andy. I mean, for the most part, he did all right, but a couple times he would just be like, oh, 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 and then try to take off running. I'm like, you're causing a scene. He is really attached to Andy. He loves Andy very much. Yeah, we all do. But uh, <laughs> it's, you should also know that he will be right back. So true. He would never leave you, Rollo. He loves you too much. They're a cute dog couple. <laughs> I mean, so they're not a couple, in like, but they're a pair. In the analogy, it so it's like Rollo and, and Andy versus you and Ruby. Do you think that's true? Um, I don't know. Here's the deal. Andy and I did that trend on TikTok where we would stand in the middle and run in different directions. You know what I mean? And where the dog would follow. Yeah, of we course. Did it multiple times, and she followed me every single time. Oh, that's sweet. Yeah. I'm sure she was like, uh, he's the one who's the craziest. So I feel like he can protect us. It's um, like Kinder Spirits. Yeah. However, I do think she loves Andy. A lot because she's just she like always attached to him. They're with him every single day while I'm at work. You know, they right. get more time yeah. together. Yeah, and then I do Rollo think follows me around. I do think in the battle royale version of your home, you and Ruby versus Andy and Rollo, you and Ruby have the added advantage of the wild cards, the cats. <laughs> <laughs> if they chose to fight for either team, which I think is a stretch. I do think they'd choose your team. Oh, yeah, 100%. Benson has my back. 
but I worry they would just go rogue and totally abandon you. I think what, what yeah, I was say I think what would happen is Benson and Munch would be fighting on my team, and then Munch would betray us all, and he would be the final one standing. <laughs> Munch is going love, full yeah. Daenerys Targaryen yeah. and just like yeah. burning everything yeah. down. Yeah. Munch is a survivalist, and he is going to survive no matter what it takes. Hey. I still think Munch is the cat version of the orphan. Like, Munch is much older Could than be. he pretends to be. Could be. Title card. Oh. oh, sorry. <laughs> what were you singing? I was just singing it to myself because I'm high and stupid. Lately, I have been... Um singing things to the melody from red light special by clc so before you join the call i was singing the way back recap all through <laughs> the night like that's been the thing that i've been singing to myself lately in case you're wondering title card new york city two days before thanksgiving Neil Page is working, trying to finalize marketing images for a cosmetics company. The client is taking forever, and we see that Neil has a flight to Chicago O'Hare International Airport at 6 p.m. Brandon, yay or nay on O'Hare? Uh, I like O'Hare, preferably. Like, when I was in Chicago, it was the one that was closest for me to take because I lived off the blue line. So I was always O'Hare. Uh, Midway's pretty go good too, but I always felt Midway was out of the way for me personally from where I lived. One hundo. So, uh, Brandon and I both have experience living in Chicago. I can say for me, I like O'Hare. I feel like there, there are more options, but now I live way closer to Midway. So now I think Midway is going to be my jam, but I like them both. What? We live closer to Midway? Remember when I picked you up last time, bro? It was only like 10 minutes from my house. That's wild. It was. Oh, my God. I did. It was hella close. Hella close. Where if I try driving to O'Hare, even right now, like a quiet Sunday night, it would take me a solid 45 minutes to drive to O'Hare. Yeah. I just always, the train always seems so much more Always take the train. But yeah. if you had a car, I get it. Yeah. Always take the train. Here's a tip. If you're flying into Chicago and you're staying in Chicago, take the train. Don't get a car. Don't get a cab. Don't get a bus. Take the blue line into the city. Then fuck shit up. That's the secret. Yeah. The, it's so easy to do. Um, what was I about to say? I feel like I spent more time in O'Hare than I did Midway Me anyways. Too. Like uh, the decade I lived in Chicago, I felt like O'Hare, majority of the time, I flew in and out of. Me too. But I think... Uh, nationally chicago o'hare gets a bad rap as an airport like people talk shit about o'hare a lot like it all the time flights get delayed like you're not supposed to come through o'hare it's not reliable bullshit 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 whatever i've never had any issues really oh good i book travel as a living like that's a big part of my job so i have people constantly complaining about chicago o'hare patricia's a trafficker that's why she books travel <laughs> no, i'm just kidding that's i fun. wish that would be so much more fun after several hours, the design, the client still can't decide and just says, we'll figure it out after the holidays. So Neil has wasted all of this time. He feels angry. I would also feel angry. This is fucking annoying. Like we were just yeah. sitting there for nothing. It's rush hour and Neil needs to get to the airport 
from Manhattan. That's a very difficult task, as there are absolutely no cabs available. He should have taken the train, idiot. Yeah. Neil spots an empty cab and has to race another man for it. The other man is played by Kevin Bacon, who, despite being in this for 20 seconds, gets fourth billing in this movie. Are you serious? I am serious. <laughs> At the time, he was making another movie with John Hughes, She's Having My Baby. And so he appeared that. in this. It's not good. I mean, it's fine. It's boring. It's like a romantic comedy. He did I not deserve fourth billing. You don't know. I do. I do know. <laughs> Neil loses that cab. And while negotiating with a dickhead for another one, he loses that cab too to a man with a giant travel trunk. The cab pulls away and Neil chases it down Park Avenue. At a stoplight, we see John Candy's face before the cab pulls away again. Eventually, Neil makes it to the airport, but he sees that his flight is delayed. We see a house that looks a lot like the Home Alone house, which was also written by John Hughes, but this is a different house in a Chicago suburb. Inside, we see Neil's family, his wife, played by that actress who always plays the wife, uh, along with the film debut of a very young and very <laughs> that was adorable- so shady. You know who I mean. That's who she plays. <laughs> uh, this is also the film debut of Matthew Lawrence, the middle Lawrence brother. Who Pretty is my adorable. favorite? Older Matthew Lawrence, especially Boy Meets World era Matthew Lawrence, could get it. Yeah. Young Brandon was babe. really into Matthew Lawrence. I was like, dude, sure. you... <laughs> Sorry, you got I know it, some sir. People... <laughs> I'm sure some people like Joey. I was a Matthew. Sure, I'm partial to Joey myself, but I'm a little older than you, so that makes sense. Uh, Neil calls home to tell them that his flight's been delayed. While waiting at the gate, he runs into the same guy he lost the cab to. The man jovially introduces himself as Del Griffin, a traveling salesman of shower curtain rings. Yeah, shower curtain rings. Those things you can buy at the dollar store for one dollar. <laughs> this man travels selling only shower curtain rings. <laughs> niche yeah. market. Niche market there, Dell. Yeah, dude. Dell apologizes over the cab and offers to make it up to Neil by buying him dinner. But Neil's in a super bad mood and is not in a headspace where he can deal with Dell's good nature ribbing or jokes. The flight finally boards, but Neil is pissed when he is bumped from first class to coach. And just as before, his path crosses with Dell, who ends up sitting next to him on the plane. No! <laughs> first of all, if I bet if I paid for first class and you're trying to move me into coach, absolutely not. You got the wrong. You got the wrong person. Mama, I said the same thing. I'm like, I'm not even like, that's a lie. I am confrontational. Dell finally, like, uh, formally introduces himself and explains that he sells these high quality shower curtain rings. While Neil tries to get out of conversation with the blabbermouth, but Dell will not shut up. Neil is getting more and more uncomfortable when Dell removes his shoes and socks. No. First of all, here's a tip from Coolie Patricia. Never take your shoes off on an airplane. 
it is impolite to say the least never mind your disgusting fucking socks no absolutely not i'm shocked that we have to have shocked that we have to have this conversation that taking your shoes off is a no-go on the airplane like i don't care who you are if you're on this airplane with me you're putting your motherfucking feet back into their shoes it's just it's even for the safety of your own feet you should not be touching airplane carpet like don't do that it's a bad idea all around i mean there's tons of pictures of people like people putting their bare feet on people's armrests and shit like that no I would stab somebody. I would absolutely stab somebody's foot if they did that shit. That's when I get arrested by an air marshal. That's how that goes. Because I couldn't deal with it. The air marshal probably wouldn't do anything because maybe they think you're like a distraction or some shit like that. Oh, maybe. Maybe. It's a different time. So eventually the trip quiets down. And Dell guesses that they are not going to make it to Chicago. And he's right. Due to heavy snow in Chicago, the flight they're on gets diverted to Wichita, Kansas. The flight is canceled. And soon, and soon after, as Dell puts it, We'd have more luck playing pickup sticks with our butt cheeks than we will getting a flight out of here before daybreak. <laughs> Neil is forced to face facts as there are no more hotel rooms in, available in the city. Being polite, Dell agrees to help him find a room at the hotel he's staying at if Neil will pay for their cab fare. Reluctantly, Neil agrees, even helping Dell schlep his sales trunk. After a colorful ride in Doobie's taxi cab, they reach the Briarwood Inn. But Bad news, there's only one room left, and that room only has a queen-size bed. I would just spend the night at the airport. Really? Yeah. Uh, I mean, maybe. I would just pull an all-nighter and sleep on the plane, if at all possible. But depending on how cold the airport was. Oh, good point. Sometimes airports are frigidly cold. The taxi was... I would like hanging out with Doobie, uh, the taxi cab driver. (laughs) I'm a little worried about Doobie. In Doobie's cab, he has posted pictures of naked women. And I just worry that not <laughs> all those women have, like, given consent to this. And so I just, I don't True. know. Yes. I don't know how I feel about about Doobie's taxi. Um, <laughs> that is true. I don't know. I forgot about that aspect <laughs> of Doobie's taxi. But I was just saying, it was a very festive, fun ride. Um, For sure. But I would... I don't know. Well, here's It'll the be thing. A tough one. So 2022 Patricia knows that while shit does get delayed at O'Hare all the time, they also clear that airport out really quickly. So like if this is, I think it's supposed to be like 10 o'clock at night, 11 o'clock at night, midnight. I know as a Chicagoan, as a Chicagoite, as a person who lives in Chicago, <laughs> that the first flight in the morning will get out. Like... For sure, the 5.30 from Wichita to Chicago O'Hare would fly out. So I would just wait at the airport. It's not that long. Just get home. Sleep later. Yeah, true. So they decide to share this room. Neil lets Dell use the bathroom first. And Dell makes a huge, giant mess. It's disgusting. He uses all the towels. It's a pain in the ass. <laughs> 
Obviously, when Eddie and I were laughing or watching this, we were laughing about that. Just <laughs> uh, just the total disregard of someone else, possibly. Yeah, like, total disregard is right. While Neil showers, Del gets out his pillow and a picture of his wife, Marie. But things are going from bad to worse. And Neil quickly grows annoyed with Dell's habits and hygiene and soon lashes out at him. Here's the thing. Neil is being an asshole for sure. But Dell is also super annoying. Like, he's made a huge disgusting mess. He spilled beer on the bed that we have to share. That's fucked up, man. Come on. Yeah. Dell is fucking annoying. Means well. <laughs> that's great. Yeah. The road to hell's paved in good intentions. <laughs> I don't care, girl. Quit being annoying right now. For real. I'm definitely the Neil in this situation. <laughs> Me too. I'm afraid I am too. No. No, just kidding. I'm just joking. He's like, no, you're the Dell, Patricia, obviously. <laughs> Dude, we're getting a Dell. Dell is super hurt by this because Neil is an asshole about it and it does hurt Dell's feelings. But he holds his ground. He's like, you know. I might be annoying, but I'm a nice guy. I'll let you stay here. Damn right. Uh, Neil paid, didn't he? Oh, so yes. <laughs> they both gave credit cards for the room. But I think Neil's card got charged for the room. Yes. Oh, yeah. Was that and the cab. Happened? Was that what happened with the credit card like switch? They had a close-up. I couldn't tell what was going on. because that Exactly. Okay. Exactly. So the they both give a credit card to pay for what they think are separate rooms, but then they find out there's only one room, and so only Neil's card gets charged, and then they give the wrong card to the wrong guy. So they both get each other's credit cards, basically. Wild. Neil concedes, and the two eventually go to sleep. I say concedes. Neil does not apologize. He's not like, sorry for being an asshole. He just is like, whatever, and they both get in bed and go to sleep. The pair wake up cuddled close. <laughs> and when I say cuddled close, I mean cuddled close. <laughs> like, they are one person in that bed. <laughs> uh, and when they wake up, both men are shocked. Back in Chicago, we see that they've gotten a fair amount of snow, and Neil calls home to check in. While eating at the hotel's diner they find that their money has been stolen. Neil first accuses Dell, but then they realize Dell has also been robbed. Most likely by the person who broke into their room in the middle of the night. Dell suggests that they just use credit cards to get home. Sure. And he also suggests catching the train to Chicago. It's interesting this movie dates itself because in the scene where they're finding like, oh, we got robbed... Neil had $700 cash in his wallet. I'm glad you brought it up because Andy oh. and I said the same thing. Andy is like, people just had that much money in their wallet back then. I was like, yes, girl. Like that. I mean, that's the Wild. only way. Because credit cards and shit, debit yeah. cards didn't exist. I yeah. don't think. Nope. Nope. You couldn't have a checkbook. You couldn't be a dude and just have a checkbook on you. Like that's wild. So you'd have cash or one, maybe two credit cards. Wild. Wild. Yeah, I was like, 
Dell had 263. Was that what it was? Yeah, 263. So also a ton of cash. Like, I never have cash. Me either. <laughs> the only time I have cash is when my mom gives me cash. That's the only time I have cash. <laughs> if I have that much cash on me immediately, I get scared. I'm like, no. Nope. Immediately. Immediately. No. You're a target. What are you doing? Come on. They, the Dell and Neil get a ride to the airport by a local who forces them to ride in the back of their, or no, no. So Neil and Dell want to go to the train station, which they think is in Wichita. But this guy who gives them a ride is like, no, 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 no. The train in Wichita doesn't have passenger trains. You got to go to Stubville, which is even further away. So now Dell and Neil have to sit in the back of the truck in cold-ass canvas with a dog snarling at them the whole way. Uh, dude, that whole entire family is a weird sitch. Really that, weird. Uh, uh, the, the, the guy who we kept doing the snarl, snort I thing. did not like it. Did not oh, like man. it. I loved it. I laughed really hard. And that dog was a jerk. <laughs> that dog was a jerk. The pair finally arrive at the train station and sort of say their goodbyes. Like, uh, Neil's like, oh, I couldn't buy us tickets together on the train, so we have to sit separately. So they kind of say goodbye. However, as the train passes through Missouri, the main engine breaks down and the passengers are forced to find other transportation. Um, American train lines have not been updated since 1964, so it makes sense that this train breaks down. Wow, I did not know that. Yeah, bro. The American train system is a disgrace. Reunited, Dell and Neil then take a bus. This bus is a nightmare. Kids running around, people smoking. But Dell livens things up doing bus karaoke. <laughs> Neil... Neil sucks and starts singing a song no one knows. But Dell saves the day by singing the theme from the Flintstones, John Candy's favorite show. Really? Yeah, it was his favorite. The bus gets them as far as St. Louis. Neil calls home but doesn't get any answers because his because everyone's at his daughter's Thanksgiving pageant. Oh. First of all, let me ask you this. You were talking shit yeah. about America's train systems, which are terrible. If they updated it and we had like a really extensive like upgrade to the train systems, would you use them? Eight million percent. Absolutely. Really? If for two hundred dollars I could get from Los Angeles to New York, one hundred percent. Like the trains, even the dated trains in Europe are so much better and faster than anything we have in the United States. Never mind if we invested in something like Japan, who has the best railway system in the world, like I would love a fast train. Yes. Tax me Definitely. for it. Yes. I would write it. <laughs> I mean, honestly, honestly, <laughs> train to Busan. Sorry. Love it. <laughs> Ever the bullshit artist, Dell manages to sell some shower curtains to get his hands on some fast cash. The pair have dinner together again, and Neil is, ta while talking, Neil admits that he thinks he's away from home too much. And Dell sort of flippantly mentions that he hasn't been home in years. Still uncomfortable with Dell, Neil suggests part they part ways. We see that this again hurts Dell's feelings, but he agrees that you know they can split up. 
Neil heads to the St. Louis airport to rent a car, only to find that the car he rented isn't there. Angrily, he throws away his rental agreement, which does not help his case when he angrily storms up to the rental car desk. The rental car clerk is played by John Hughes' favorite and cultural icon Edie McClurg. And she is the perfect counter to Steve Martin's fuck-filled monologue. This is the scene that convinced Steve Martin to take the part. Without his rental agreement, Edie tells Neil, You're fucked. <laughs> You're fucked. I loved Edie McClurg. She's so good in this. Uh, yeah. Um, I feel Steve Martin's yeah. first... Excuse me, Neil's rage at this point. Yeah. I would have knocked that phone out of her fucking hand if she would, like, put her finger up to me after all that shit. Like, I know that's not the way we should handle things. Violence is terrible. But, bitch, if you don't get off this fucking phone... (laughs) As a person who rented cars for 10 years, dealing with car rental companies can be so frustrating. I'm sure it's just, like, the pressure that you need to get where you're going, but... It can be infuriating dealing with those people, so I feel for them. But I don't think you should be mean to customer service people. Like they're no, just trying to do their job. Like Edie take was a deep not. Breath. No. Edie was not. <laughs> she was just talking to her sister about Thanksgiving. Yeah, that's what would piss me off. I'm like, girl, you don't hang the fuck up and help make this goddamn car, bitch. <laughs> On his way out of the airport, Neil is very rude to a taxi agent who knocks Neil onto his ass and into the road, where Dell, in his rental car, nearly runs Neil over. While asking the taxi agent to help Neil up, John Candy calls him an insensitive asshole. And it's the best line reading of all time. Like, I don't know why, but when John Candy calls you an insensitive asshole, I laugh really, really, really hard. Yeah, Steve Martin got... You were talking shit. And then got hit. You know, you just, you, you gotta be, you can't be rude to people, guys, especially around the holidays. Like, everybody is on the edge. Be nice. Just be nice. In the car, Dell is talking nonstop while Neil sits in pain and, and is in somehow an even worse mood than he was in before. They drive for a long time, even though St. Louis is only four hours from Chicago. And it's a super easy car trip. Like, you just go straight up one highway. I think 55. I don't know. It's not hard to get to Chicago from St. Louis. Andy and I were talking about that, too. It's like, that's not even that long. It's not even, like, a crazy ride. It does not take you a long time. Late into the night, Dell is me on every road trip dancing too hard and too loud to some music on the radio. (laughs) I was like, we've taken plenty of together uh actually from similar distances from this and yeah you do dance and i love it i do dance i love it yeah i'm a driver i can't if i'm in a car i might as well be driving thank you so much dell is also smoking nonstop. now this is less of a character trait and was more a way to keep john candy on set as the famous funny man smoked constantly what yeah Oh, yeah, at least a pack a day and some cigars. Big smoker. Dell gets hot and tries to take off his coat, but he loses control of the car 
and almost kills himself and Neil by going the wrong way on the highway, which is a huge, like, that's an irrational fear I have, and it scares the shit out of me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that shit's scary and happens more often than you think it does. Yeah. It's awful. I had a hard time laughing at that because I was like, uh... I was just anxious, yeah, the whole time. I'm just clutching my pearls. Shortly afterward, a cigarette that Dell had not put out ignites inside the car, setting the passenger compartment aflame. Along with Neil's wallet, which was stuck in the glow compartment. Neil has reached delirium, and instead of getting mad, he laughs as the car burns. Eventually, they discover that Dell had used Neil's credit card to rent the car, which is now on fire. Neil slugs Dell hard in the stomach. Dell tells Neil, "You know, you could have killed me slugging me in the gut when I wasn't ready. That's how Houdini died, you know." <laughs> Point of order: Harry Houdini had said he could withstand hard punches to the stomach. That was like a thing he did. But at the end of his life. He got punched in the stomach repeatedly by a student at McGill University, and they thought that that's what killed Houdini. That's not what killed Houdini. He died from a ruptured appendix. But that's an urban legend <laughs> that Houdini was killed by a punch to the stomach. So I just wanted to point that <laughs> out. I laughed at that line, and uh, and he was like, really? I was like, yeah, definitely happened. After getting the fire out, the two make their way to a motel. Neil manages to use his watch and some cash to get a room, but Dell is not so lucky. In his room, Neil calls home again, but doesn't get an answer. Resigned to sleep in the car, the burnt-up, roofless car, <laughs> Dell is feeling bad, recognizing that maybe he is a major pain in the ass. Eventually, Neil takes pity on Dell and allows him to stay in the room as well. They raid the minibar together and the vending machines and get a little drunk. Dell says he's going to Jamaica next. Shout out to Cool Runnings. Still feeling down, Neil reminds Dell how lucky they are to have wives who love them. The next morning, as they, so they have to take the car again, but they have to dig it out of the snow first. God, in the digging, worst. <laughs> in digging the car out of the snow, Dell drives the car into the lobby of the motel, after which he and, he and Neil just haul ass out of there and take no responsibility for the now completely ruined motel. It doesn't take long. <laughs> It doesn't take long before the two are pulled over because they're because they're speeding. They're pulled over by a cop. Now, the cop is played by Michael McKeon, podcast favorite, entertaining legend, Michael McKeon. But the role was like really reworked and ultimately super reduced. Initially, he was going to be in the movie for like 10 minutes. But with all the cuts they did, his part was like under a minute and a half. Even though he's fifth build. Wow. In the movie, their pathetic excuse, excuse for a vehicle is impounded. But Dell finds alternate transportation. In, uh, they ride in the back of a semi-truck, a freezer truck. But they do eventually arrive in Chicago, well into Thanksgiving Day. 
Neil and Dell partways at the LaSalle Van Buren L stop, a station I know very well. Yeah, likewise. I was like, whoa. <laughs> they say goodbye. And we can really see that Neil has softened a lot towards Dell. Once on the train, all Neil can think about is his friend Dell carting that big trunk. And Neil remembers that Dell had said he hadn't been home in years. <laughs> Neil returns to the station and finds Dell sitting all by himself. Dell admits that his wife Marie, who he's been talking about the whole movie, has been dead for eight years. And that Dell doesn't really have anywhere to go. Because this is a holiday movie, Neil brings Dell home with him for Thanksgiving dinner. And Dell is overjoyed to meet Neil's beautiful, loving family before the movie ends. Um, do you think, where do you think Neil lived? Uh, did they say that? Because he had to live off the blue line. Because if he's at that station, he could transfer to all kinds of different places. That's the thing, is I'm not sure. I think they want us to think that he lives in the city. But I think in real life, he would have lived in like Winneka. Yeah. Like, he wouldn't have taken the L train. He would have gotten on the Metra. Like, they would have gone to Union Station, and he would have gotten on a Metra train to Winnetka. Truly. Truly. Um, originally, the movie didn't end like that. Originally, the movie ended with Dell recognizing that he's taken up a lot of Neil's time and sort of, like, reading the room, and Dell being like, go enjoy your family, and them kind of saying goodbye at the train station. That's where the movie originally ended. But then they reshot it after test audiences didn't like that ending. Really? Yeah. Interesting. God, test audiences are terrible. I feel like that's <laughs> the more realistic ending. And I would I would have been okay with that. Like if they had like a good yeah. goodbye. I would have been okay with both of them. But if if this is a holiday movie, I think the ending that they included was the right ending. Like, that's how, okay. like, it's schmaltzy, but that's kind of how it should end. Movie critic Roger Ebert gave this movie three and a half out of four stars in his original review. But in the follow-up review in 2000, he gave it four out of four stars. He loved this movie. It was, it was on his great movies list, and he watched it every Thanksgiving. Wow. This movie was a big hit. And it made over $40 million at the box office. John Candy would make more movies with John Hughes, including podcast favorite Home Alone, which yeah. John Candy only... So, like, John Candy agreed to, like, appear in the movie, but he wanted to do it, like, as a friend to John Hughes. He's like, no, no, I don't even need a fee. Like, I just want to do this as a favor to you. John Hughes would try to dissuade. He's like, no, no, no. You know, I can't pay you a lot, but what we can do is promise you a percentage of the gross. Like, if you'll come do this, you know, we'll give you 1.5 percentage of the gross. If John Candy had taken that deal, he would have made millions of dollars. Like, Home Alone was a huge success. So, by John Candy refusing to do that, it was a misstep. Damn, John Candy. Your homeboy resulting, to help you out. I know. Resulting from this, John Candy and John Hughes had a serious falling out and didn't work what? together again. Yeah. In 1993, John Candy teamed up again with Disney and saw a comeback in the hit movie Cool Runnings. We are definitely going to do a whole episode about Cool Runnings. <laughs> I know we've said yes. that four times on this episode, but it's still true. <laughs> yes. 
While John Candy was joyful and the life of the party, he had a lot of inner demons. Demons that he tried to silence with booze, cigars, cocaine, and food. Whoa, sounds like me. Never under 300 pounds, Candy lived a life of excess. And that excess caught up with him on March 4th, 1994, when it was announced that while filming what would be his last movie, Wagons East, John Candy died in his sleep from a massive heart attack at the age of 43. When John Candy died, people were gutted. Especially John Hughes, who was beside himself that he hadn't cleared the air with John Candy before he died. As the two had been incredibly close... In 2009, so 15 years later, when Hughes himself was dying from cancer, he still felt terrible guilt about how things went with John Candy. Steve Martin talked in an interview about his late co-star John Candy and noted the similarities he had with the character of Dell. Well, he was a very sweet guy, very sweet and complicated. And so he was always friendly, always outgoing, you know, funny and nice and polite but I could tell he had kind of a little broken heart inside of him. He was a brilliant actor, especially in planes, trains, and automobiles. I think it was his best work. I read a crushing article told, written by John Candy's kids, Chris and Jen, about what it was like losing their dad. I'll link it in the show notes because it's sad, but it also shows how adored John Candy was. On the day of his funeral, the LAPD shut down the 405 interstate. John Candy's son, Chris, said, LAPD stopped traffic and escorted us all. I still can't believe that. Whenever I feel like I lose the importance of him to people, I just remember that happened. Candy's death was hard on his famous friends. Longtime friend from SCTV, Catherine O'Hara, dealt with the news of his death on her 40th birthday. Dan Aykroyd delivered the eulogy, while Catherine's daughters sang a hymn. Among the 200 mourners at the church were Tom Hanks, Chevy Chase, Wayne Gretzky, Bill Murray, Ron Howard, Jack Nicholson, Rhea Perlman, Rick Moranis, Jim Belushi, the list goes on and on. He, this man was adored. After the funeral, Steve Martin saw the Candy family home, the two kids and his widow Rosemary. And Steve Martin ended up staying with the family for months. He was going through a divorce at the time. And so he found that helping the Candy family through this difficult time was also cathartic for him, which I think is really sweet and kind of sweeter than I thought Steve Martin could be. That sounds like a sitcom. <laughs> when John died, he left several unfinished projects. In the animated Disney film Pocahontas, the role of Redfeather the turkey was written for him, but was subsequently cut from the film after his death. Candy was also working on a biopic about the murdering silent film comedian Roscoe Fatty Arbuckle. Many in Hollywood say that the Fatty pick is cursed because every actor attached to it passed away. Originally, John Belushi was supposed to do it. He died. Then Sam Kinison was supposed to do it. He died. Then John Candy. Then Chris Farley. 
I just don't Wait. think we should make the movie. Was <laughs> Fatty Arbuckle was Fatty Arbuckle a murderer? So Fatty Arbuckle was a rapist and was accused of manslaughter of a woman who he definitely uh, killed. Yes. Wow. Uh, he was tried three times. The last trial ended in an acquittal when a new witness uh, appeared and could be an alibi to Fatty Arbuckle. That witness was undoubtedly paid by a studio to do that. In my opinion, allegedly. Wow. For a guy who was only around for a short time, John Candy's legacy cannot be ignored. And while this movie might not be my favorite, I do have to agree with Steve Martin that planes, trains, and automobiles really does demonstrate what a star John Candy was. And the movie does help you get into the get into kind of the holiday spirit. And I think I'll add it to my rotation from here on out. Me too, dude. Thank you all for tuning in. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or embarrassing confessions, please send us an email at thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. That's thewaybackrecap at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram at thewaybackrecappod. If you'd like to support the show or listen to bonus content, exclusive episodes, visit our Patreon page. Our original cover art is by Laura Strobish. Uh, remember, wherever you listen to podcasts, follow or subscribe to the Wayback Recap. If you enjoy yourself, please rate and review the show, but if that's too much. We totally get it. Tell a friend. Preferably a responsible friend who will rate and review the show. And join us next time. I'm Brandon. And I'm Patricia. And on behalf of the Wayback Recap, take, take care, care of each, each other, other y'all. y'all.